Hi and welcome to With Reason with me, Alice Block. And me, Samira Shackle. This podcast comes to you from New Humanist magazine and the Rationalist Association. It's the place where we talk to people in fields like philosophy, science and culture. People who use bright thinking to challenge dogma and lazy ideas. It's a space, as usual, to think about reason and unreason, belief and disbelief, debate and, crucially, criticism. Uh, In the past couple of series, we've talked to people like the AI expert Kate Devlin about sex, tech and feminism, and to the writer Catherine Angel on the subject of consent and real-life desire. But today we're looking at motherhood and choice with Pragya Agarwal. Alice, this one's yours, so I'll sit back and let you introduce Pragya, and I'll be back to chat with you about my take a bit later. Pragya Agarwal is the behavioural and data scientist who you might well know already from her best-selling book Sway, Unravelling Unconscious Bias. That book unpacked the way in which our implicit biases, to quote her, affect how we communicate, how we make decisions and offered a kind of toolkit for addressing them. Now, though, Pragya's turn to motherhood in a book by that same name with the M in brackets, so kind of motherhood, otherhood, I guess. Um, She describes that book as sitting between a memoir and a scientific and historical disquisition of women's reproductive choices and infertility. Um, It's pretty frank. It's moving at times. And it tells the story of Pragya's roller coaster journey through fertility and infertility. So she's experienced pregnancy, abortion, IVF and surrogacy across two continents and along the way she considers the choices available to women and the compromised contexts in which they're they're made I should say I think choice really is a a word that we should keep in kind of quotation marks for the remainder of today's discussion Um, now motherhood does feel like really different territory from that covered in sway and so I asked Pragya did she see any kind of thread linking the two you know is it perhaps the concept of choice that links these two books Yes, absolutely. It's the notion of choice, but also the thread that I feel runs through my work is about how we behave and why we behave the way we do, but also how what impact does it have on society? What impact are positions in society, these systemic and structural hierarchies that have been created in society? What impact does it have on different people according to their place in, in these hierarchies? And I think reflecting on that is is like a common thread through Sway and Wish We Knew and then motherhood is about these inequities that exist in society. Why is it that some people have more choice, some people don't have choice, some people are more marginalized, some people are at the bottom of the hierarchy and what dynamic does it create? How does it affect the society and how does it affect individuals? Mm. And I mean, motherhood is really quite a kind of saturated genre or market, I guess, in publishing. There is a lot written about it. Um, But one thing that your book in particular stresses is that an intersectional approach to the study of pregnancy and birth, you know, so one that takes account of differences, you know, race, class and gender and so on, really remains lacking. I wonder, you know, as a data scientist, you know, what are the existing data gaps, re-pregnancy and motherhood for women of colour? And, you know, maybe was there something you went looking for in your research, you know, heading off to the British Library or whatever, and were really shocked to actually find the answer just didn't exist because no one's bothered to ask the question? I'm, I'm actually pleased that you thought that this is how it stood apart, because when I started writing it before the pandemic, I didn't really think that there were that many books about motherhood Mm. from uh, even mothering perspective. And I think it's that that notion how mothers or women are carrying so much of mental and emotional load has become so heightened during the pandemic and lockdown. So it was interesting to see how much suddenly this discourse has become so mainstream. 
But still, that means that discourse is very much focused in one kind of person, one kind of mother, and one kind of family, I think. And and we still fall back on those norms mm-hmm. and stereotypes. And when you say one kind, those, you mean white, middle class, white, so Western, and white, sort of abstract. Yes, white. heterosexual, yes. Yes, that's yeah, it. white, middle class, straight women. And I, I, a lot of memoirs were still being published from them. A lot of work that was being done was still focused on them. And I started looking at the data in infertility. And when I first started looking at it, the data wasn't even disaggregated or collected from black and brown women. And I couldn't find how many women were undergoing infertility treatment and what were the ages. And even if there was data disaggregation in places, it was according to the BME category, which which is such a universal broad category. So I, I've really struggled to find data on it. And then again, if we start looking at the different people who are on the margins of fringes, transgender or non-binary people, there's hardly any data. So as I say in the book, I talk to many people, I talk to many trans men and women and non-binary and their experiences of healthcare and their experiences of motherhood. But in the end, I couldn't find a lot of scientific data because they've been ignored in the studies, not that they don't exist, but there hasn't been any dedicated research studies on that. And also, I didn't want these 20 experiences that I had to be this kind of tokenistic voice. And it was not my story to tell. I had to write from a cisgender perspective that I was. And that is why I think it was really important for me to make that lens clear as well, that this is my perspective. And so the terminology I use, so the data I fall back on, which is because it exists and the other doesn't exist, but I have to talk about it from this perspective. I cannot be the voice of a community that I do not belong to. But it is a shame that this data still doesn't exist, that we are still not disaggregating the data to understand how different people who are not at the top of these hierarchies are affected by these issues. And and your own perspective is a really, really fascinating one because you're a really successful academic and consultant over here in the UK and have been for a couple of decades, I think now. But you also, you grew up in India and that's where you had your first child, um, your daughter, who correct me if I'm wrong, she, she lived with your mother in India while you completed your PhD here in the UK. And I, I don't want to make assumptions, I guess, about motherhood in, in saying this, but, you know, that sounds like an incredibly difficult thing to have gone through, I imagine. Tell me what were the conventions around motherhood when you were growing up? So I grew up in the north of India, which is more patriarchal, I think, in the, than the south. Um, I think there are some matriarchal societies or communities in the south of India where, for instance, uh, the women, uh, the daughters take women, their mother's names and things like that. But in the north, it's a very, it was a very patriarchal society that I grew up in, um, in the sense that the moment a girl is born, there's always a sense of kind of commiseration with the parents because the, the, it wasn't a son or a male heir to take over. My my parents had three daughters, and I remember how everybody would look at us with pity that we didn't have a brother to look after us or our parents. I think that made me quite angry as I was growing up, but also quite determined to break those norms and stereotypes that were imposed on me. If somebody said this is good for girls or girls are supposed to do that, I would rebel against it. So there was a sense that girl or a woman's destiny is to be a good wife, a good mother. It's all about what can you do to be an ideal wife so that you get married into a good family and then your destiny is obviously to be a good mother. And the role models that I saw were about mothers who were Uh, who self-sacrificed. Your identity doesn't matter anymore or your aspirations or ambitions because 
your success of your husband or your children is what is most important. And that's what women do. Yes. And, and women are good at it. Women are good at hiding their pain and women are good at hiding their, their expectations and women are good at staying calm and keeping everybody calm. And these are all the things you see in films and these are the things you see around you as well. But as I write in motherhood, there were other roles, models of motherhood I saw as well in the t- sense of women who, had to leave their children behind in villages because they had to go and look look after other people's children as well. So there was this huge socioeconomic disparities that are that exist in India as well. And again, these hierarchies of where you belong in this hierarchy determines your place and your no- notion of motherhood as well. Um, so I saw that yes, and I grew, gave birth to my first daughter there, and it was a very difficult pregnancy and difficult childbirth. But that also everything that I saw around me. I think kind of woke me up in a way to this awareness that I had to create a different life for us. And it, yeah, it, it is really clear that this background, this experience gave you a really strong understanding of how our so-called choices and decisions re, you know, whether and how to become a mother, you know, our very sense of kind of what the horizons of what's possible are, are just so strongly shaped by cultural context. And you do talk about this in the context of abortion, which is something that you personally chose when you became pregnant later again. Now here in the UK, in the early stages of a relationship, in writing, you know, very candidly and, and very movingly about abortion and your own abortion, you also look, look kind of more broadly and you list some really shocking examples of how women's choices can be constrained. So I think the most standout one for me um, was from Paraguay, where in 2015, Amnesty reported that a 10 year old girl who was pregnant after being raped was denied access to a safe abortion due to strict abortion laws there. But I guess whilst examples like that are shocking, it's also important to note that it's not just the law that limits a woman's access to abortion, is it? You know, there are way more kind of insidious, subtle things at work that prevent a woman having control over her own reproductive health, um, including here in the UK, I guess. And I wonder what examples you have of that from, from your research either kind of discursive ones, just kind of subtle nudges that are out mm-hmm. there or or actually kind of um, kind of mechanisms that, that get in the way of people making free choices? I think coercion works in many different ways mm. and we can talk about coercive control. And I know we're having this discourse a lot around what does coercion really means and I, I address it subtly in the book about how coercion can work in different ways about limiting our choices. But also it's thinking about what choices do we really have on offer and the messages that we get from society that if we make this choice, then we are not making the right choice. And that can sway us towards different choices as well, because we, we get this sense from society and we internalize this message that actually, even though I really want to make this choice, this is not the right choice. And so we are swayed towards that choice. So there's always this message that's given that if you actually choose to undergo abortion, you will regret it later. And we hear so many more stories of that. But there's also research to show that women who have undergone abortion, who chose to do that, did not actually, more than 85% of them did not actually regret that choice later on because they were very fully capable of making that choice to choose the kind of life that they wanted, what was right for them in that instance or not. These These coercions can come from family members from cultural context about thinking about what and religious reasons as well about what abortion really means so not just legally and about the partner that you are with about whether you have access to these services or not sometimes 
the kind of access to these services and resources can also limit a woman's choice, which we don't often consider as well. And also the the access to services, if you are to then become a mother, you know, will will weigh heavily on your mind. So you talk about the socio-legal framework, you know, is there state-funded childcare available? Can a woman afford to become a mother? Absolutely. And returning to your own story, some years after the abortion that you describe in your book, you tried for another baby with the same partner I think Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. but the the two of you struggled to conceive um, Mm -hmm. and you turned to IVF before you looked then into surrogacy which you went ahead with in the book you you suggest that perhaps women do have some kind of primitive desire that makes them broody um, to quote but you also dismiss the idea of the so-called body clock as a kind of social and patriarchal construct so I just wonder can you clarify kind of what your perspective actually is here because I guess you know some people might say well come on body clock it's a really annoying phrase and I don't want to be pressured about it by adverts on the tube telling me to freeze my eggs or whatever but you know time is real age is real it's pretty much real isn't it yeah time is real age is real but this panic that's created around the the, this this mythical figure of 35 Mm -hmm. is not real it's not (laughs) reality women yeah yes 35 in women and this they and after that they're called geriatric because of this notion that 35 is just too late to have a child and recently we are and 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 every woman is not built on a template so we don't have enough data women are not given enough data to actually make up their mind and to know what these data sets even what the blood tests are telling us how do we know whether we can become pregnant later on or not yes women have a limited egg reserve we know that but we this this is also linked to how women's fertility is big business and that is why there is this panic around it. And also this societal expectation that every woman has to become a mother and every woman's role or destiny is to become a mother, which is why we're seeing this panic at the moment in media around the falling birth rate. And and every media uh, publication is reporting on that, that the world birth rate is falling. And why is that? And people are, women are choosing career over having children. And so it becomes like this binary choice uh, for women. We have to choose to have children and not prioritize our career because otherwise we are seen as selfish. And I think that that notion of panic is not really conducive to making any decision or to having a choice. It's not a choice. If you are being pressured into making this choice because of these external messages. And also my point is that, first of all, all women are not built on a template. Uh, Secondly, we're not talking enough about men's fertility. Yes. I wanted to ask you about this, what the actual science says about whether the body clock is real in men too, because, you know, I think you mentioned one of, actually one of the biggest takeaways from your book for me was just this staggering fact about Charlie Chaplin becoming a father in his early 70s, which I had no idea about. Um, but I mean, is, is that an anomaly? Um, are you saying actually there is a body clock thing going on for men too, and actually that's not talked about enough? Yeah, I, I, there is not, it is not talked about enough. It's, it's again linked to this notion that yes, egg freezing is very lucrative business. It costs 20 times more than smart freezing, if I recall correctly. And yes, first of all, there's not been enough research in men's fertility. There's not been that much focus on it because of the focus on women's fertility so much. But the research that we have shows that actually there is a degradation of the sperm. There is degradation of sperm motility and other other factors that can affect men's fertility as they grow older after the age of 40. So it's not just the woman, but also the male fertility that comes into question as well. And these 
the yes we hear of stories of men becoming fathers at an older age but compared to women who are stigmatized for having children at an older age yeah. like we saw recently with Naomi Campbell men are kind of like put on a pedestal kind of rock stars, oh, yeah, yeah yeah they are they can do anything and then you can become a father at the age of 70 yeah and and so we hear of these So there is a huge paradox in how fertility is talked about in terms of women and men's fertility. It is so inherently linked to the stereotypes that are ingrained in our society. So yes, men don't have the similar pressures, but there is still um, a, a link between age and men's fertility. And uh, we saw this with recently with the WHO messaging around drinking and and women's fertility, how the focus was merely on women's fertility, about how women between 18 and 50 of childbearing age, they were called, should not drink or should prevent from drinking because it affects their fertility. But as I pointed out that in recently that there is research to show actually from a number of case studies that men's fertility is also infected heavily by drinking, wow. but there was no mention of that. Um, so, so crucially, as you say, I mean, infertility is often pinned on the woman in a heterosexual couple. You know, it's seen as her problem, her kind of burden to carry, something to feel guilty about. It's kind of assumed if a couple can't conceive that, you know, okay, it's probably the woman. I was really fascinated by this concept of psychogenic infertility from the 1940s that you mentioned. So it's this idea, to quote you, um, that women who were educated unconsciously hijacked their own fertility I guess kind of you know if the cleverer you are the you know the greater risk there is that you might not be able to conceive something like that tell me about that and its resonance today because I mean for me that that sort of speaks to the trope of the the uptight career woman something like that absolutely there's again this notion that women by choosing careers are actually hijacking or are affecting their fertility or not having children. So there is this fear of panic that is created around it, that if all women started to just focus on their careers, what will happen to our world? But it's also linked to today about how women's pain is dismissed and ignored um, and women's illnesses are dismissed and ignored in, in medical and healthcare domain as well. And we see numerous examples of that through history. But now, even now, we've had lots of discussions about it. And it's because often it's considered that these these physical manifestations are either imaginary or they're just linked in emotional distress or emotional kind of anxieties. Um, and that they, that a lot of chronic pain or invisible disabilities or these invisible illnesses take yeah. a long time to get diagnosed because it yeah. is assumed that it's linked to emotional anxiety and that actually women are imagining and, and it. On that question of pain, I've also become aware of research that talks about how there can be a perception that women of colour, and it's horrific, are so supposedly better able to bear pain than white women in in childbirth I wonder if that's research that you've come across you know on that on that prejudice on that bias and what on earth that is about and where that comes from and what we can even do about it yes I talked about it in Sway actually in my mm-hmm. earlier book Sway about how these prejudices are formed and how they're much they're rooted in eugenics these notions false scientific myths that black people for instance had thicker skin so they, they had more ability to bear pain. And obviously, when the gender and race intersects, these, some of these biases are heightened. We know that of the effect of intersectionality. Um, so obviously, women are prejudiced. And, and when you are a black woman, 
that prejudices still carry. And there is research, recent research to show that actually a lot of these carry forward in some of the medical and scientific textbooks. I was recently writing an article about it, about how these prejudices and misconceptions have carried forward and healthcare professionals still believe that black women are more likely or more able, black and brown women are more able to bear pain because their skin is thicker or because uh, they, and, and there are cultural issues as well sometimes because when women know that they are undergoing stereotype threat and they have these cultural pressures to to appear stronger, they don't have the luxury, they sometimes don't vocalize or articulate their pain as much as as and others would do. So I know from research that black and brown women sometimes don't talk about their pain in the same way or don't show their pain in the same way as That's well. That's fascinating, isn't it? The idea yeah. that actually being able to articulate your yeah. pain freely is a yes. is actually a privilege that we, we don't think about. Absolutely. You're listening to With Reason. I'm Alice Block and I'm talking to Pragya Agarwal about her memoir on academic treatise on motherhood and reproductive choice. If you want to hear more about the importance of taking an intersectional look at real lives, so that's looking at things like racism and gender and class and how they shape a person's lived everyday experience, head to our archive to hear Jason Arde talking about Cool Britannia and its blind spots. Or you could head back to series two to catch the sociologist Luke de Narona talking about his book, Deporting Black Britons. Time now, though, for a quick word from New Humanist editor Samira Shackle. When we're not making with reason, we're busy putting together New Humanist, a quarterly journal of ideas, science and culture. If you enjoyed this podcast, you'll love the magazine. Recent issues have included an analysis of why conspiracy theories are so popular in this moment, uh, climate change and the politics of health. Uh, If you want a 50% discount on a year's subscription, you can head to newhumanist.org.uk slash subscribe and enter the offer code with reason. That means you'll get four beautiful print editions through your door across the year, all for the modest sum of £13.50. Back now to Pragya Agarwal. So Pragya, we were talking about the idea of the so-called body clock and the pressure to have a child. And it seems a good time to mention a piece from the New Humanist Archive, which is actually a review that I did back in 2019 of a book called Childless Voices by Lorna Gibb. And that's all about the experiences of childless or child-free people worldwide. So it's a global portrait of those without children, whether through circumstance, choice, loss or denial. Um, Lorna Gibb writes about the rituals and the lengths performed by people desperate to have children and how sometimes actually that desperation can be really heavily exploited too. You mentioned a couple of times, I think, how despite being a scientist, you know, in the toughest moments when you were struggling with infertility, when trying for a second child, you found yourself recalling various Hindu scriptures or reading scientific studies, but kind of doing so half-heartedly or even considering kind of ritual and superstition. Tell me a little bit about that, and I guess kind of what it says about human nature to you, really. Yes, we fall back on rituals. We fall back on some of these these things because we feel like at that point, we are always trying to think of anything that could work, I suppose. we When we want something desperately, we want to just reach that goal and resort to whatever works. But also there is, I suppose, there is some kind of a confirmation bias into it as well, where we are looking for information that would confirm our existing beliefs. Yeah, I mean, we all do that when we Google something, don't we? We just look and look until we find what what we want to hear. And a lot of science is like that as well. Mm. Sometimes we might think we are very objective scientifically, but no, we we look, we cherry pick information sometimes. We look for things that confirm our existing beliefs because 
that is less cognitively taxing for our brain. And, and, and those times of threat or fear or insecurities and those kind of desperation or hopelessness, we need to preserve our cognitive resources. We don't have those kind of mental resources to actually contradict our existing beliefs. And so if we have to take on new information that doesn't confirm our, our belief or our hope that this is going to work, that will be more cognitively taxing for us. What examples do you have from, from your story of those moments where you did turn to um, kind of superstitious ideas or ritual kind of despite your scientific brain? I think there so much of it. Um, we, we, there was no scientific basis to whether I should eat pineapple or whether I should um, have acupuncture. There wasn't mm-hmm. any a lot of information or scientific research to show either way what should work or not. Whether this is in IVF, yeah, during IVF yes, rounds. Yes, yeah. or having kale juice or having any of the other supplements that I was taking. There's also not that in much actually scientific research to show that whether stress affects our for chances of fertility or not as well but there's always this kind of myth and everybody telling each other don't get stressed because that can affect your chances of being pregnant and so I remember really feeling guilty about it and it's kind of I find finding it very difficult because that is a situation when you're being very stressed and I looked at a lot of research later on about what it says and actually there wasn't that much valid scientific research to show whether stress affects our chances and how much. Just going back, I mean, I guess you gave there a kind of scientific explanation earlier of why we might resort to superstition and ritual. But I guess, you know, there is is just this huge risk, isn't there, that people's desperation around fertility in particular can just be so terribly exploited by people offering solutions, you know, in quote marks, that just really aren't based in evidence at all. I wonder whether you've come across any examples or research on examples of that, whether from you know India or the UK. Yes, at that stage when you're really desperate for things to be successful, when you have this goal and when you're putting your body through this treatment, you want to look for solutions, anything that could help. I know in India there's a huge kind of religious uh, fervor around these things. There are um, There are priests, there are things like the gems or stones that could work. There's a huge amount of belief in what wearing what kind of gemstone can make things work on which finger. Um, there are lots of solutions that are offered with people who, who read horoscopes about prayers that you can perform that would put all the planets and align the planets in the right order for you. Um, and all those things happen quite a lot, not just in the rural parts of India, but also it's really interesting to see very educated, highly educated people in urban parts of India really believing in a lot of things that are planetary alignments um, affect our behavior and our, our chances of conceiving or not conceiving or our prospects in business and success in life and all those things as well. That's fascinating. So it's, yeah. it's kind of the urban, maybe more educated population as well here. It's not yes. just kind of rural people say, you exactly. know, that would be the stereotype. Going back to Lorna Gibbs' book that I mentioned, Childless Voices, that also features interviews with people who've chosen not to have children. So um, she talks about ginks, green inclinations, no kids. She also talks about a nun who sees herself as a spiritual mother to many, um, to quote her. This nun, she doesn't see herself as childless. And she says that actually to say that a woman is only a mother if she gives physical birth is very limiting of womanhood. Um, and later, though, Lorna Gibb wonders, well, isn't it enough to be a woman? What is it about the role of mother that means we have to attain it, whatever the difficulties, whatever the form. Um, that's to quote her. And and that part of her book, I think, speaks, at least to me, to your own reflections on your experience of contracting a surrogate in India 
um, to carry and give birth to eventually your twin daughters. Um, that's something that you're very honest about and you really admit feeling tremendous ambivalence about, even quite deep into the process. Just tell me a bit about that, kind of what those feelings were and, and what you did to mitigate your concerns around surrogacy, which is obviously just such a, a controversial topic. Yes, again, it comes back to the choices that women have and the autonomy they have about their bodies and how we believe that certain women have more right to their bodies than others and how we impose our expectations of them, of women in certain parts of the world and believe that they don't have the autonomy on their bodies. So I suppose in the, yes, surrogacy is highly um, controversial. In, I wanted to discuss it in an honest way because I think I wanted to write from a perspective of a person who went through it but also thought about it quite a lot. I didn't want to paint it in a picture of saying, actually, I did it, so it is perfectly okay to do it. I wanted to look at everything because that's how I examine things when I'm working through things. So I looked at a lot of literature about experiences of surrogates, um, and I see that a lot of media panic that's created are is around these stories that come out where this it didn't work, where their rights were per, perhaps not respected, and all the legalities and issues around it. And I suppose, once again, we talk about some of these issues without centering the voice of people who really matter and whose stories we are trying to tell. And we see that with other debates and discourses as well. People who are not part of that community, people who have never been through that process, feel that it's right to talk about that process. And I think it's the research that centers the voice of the surrogates was really interesting for me, which is not much again, which is there's not much that much research where, where people have. So that voice is often marginalized. Exactly, because it's almost believed that women who have undergone or taken the role of surrogates, surrogates in India don't have a voice. So in doing that, we are actually marginalizing them and not giving even giving them the platform or even giving them the option to have autonomy over their body in mm. any way so even if when they did speak yeah. they, they happened to say you know actually I didn't like this yes. it's important that they're spoken to and, and asked for their perspective on their own experience yeah and so I looked at mm-hmm. some of the research that's this longitudinal study that was done over 10 years where, where it was really interesting to me to read about that there's a lot of research done at Cambridge in in, uh, in this and where they've talked about women who have undergone surrogacy and the intended parent, but also women who have been surrogates and what their experiences have been at the time, but five years later as well. And I looked at the legalities. I looked at the legal issues. We hired a lawyer to talk through it. We looked at different yeah. clinics. We talked. And you translated them. documents, yes. yeah, which I, you said doesn't normally happen, yes. which is incredible. Yeah, we really so you made sure do. that the documents and the contracts were translated into Hindi yes, we really so that your surrogate could actually understand. Yeah. What she was signing, I mean, that's phenomenal that that might not have, might not happen in every case. Yeah, it might not be happening yeah. in every case, but we were really yeah. adamant that we wanted to and we wanted to make sure that we knew how they were selected, what how they, they were chosen for this, how they were looked after and all those kind of things. And we met her afterwards and it was clear that she had been happy about it. But yes, of course, when you read all these news items, when um, we read such polarized discourses and debates, it's very difficult to make up your mind. It's a very emotional process as well. When you're undergoing something where you feel like you're about to become a mother, but you're not carrying your children. And you feel like whether I actually feel like a mother or not, I'm so disconnected from this process. I don't know how I should feel or how I'm going to feel because it's all very new. And 
And I really wanted to capture that part as well. And they were, I suppose, in writing that, I was also admitting to parts of myself that I wasn't really proud of, because I think sometimes we can airbrush those parts of ourselves, that, that those selves that in the past that we might have acted upon, or we might have thought of things, and we airbrush them when we're writing, and we say actually no I was perfectly okay or I was really happy or whatever and absolutely we can kind of rewrite the story of our own ambivalence to kind of erase (laughs) erase that uncertainty that existed at the time actually that brings me to ask you about the the concept of mothering but before I do that we should note though that in 2016 after your um your girls had been born India did change its law on surrogacy yeah so now no foreigners can go and um carry out surrogacy in India um, nobody who is not of Indian descent but the main th- main thing for me is that it's a very severely homophobic law as well even though homosexuality is being legalized in India because no same sex couples in, even in civil partnership can t- carry out surrogacy in that way so and um, also after talking about surrogacy you suggest that really we should maybe talk of mothering as well as or maybe even instead of I think motherhood at times tell me a little bit about that why what this word mothering means to you um i was thinking about nature and nurture at that time as well um because as i say i was really during that process feeling so detached from it because i suppose a lot of the things that you read or hear about or talk about is about this bodily experience of carrying a child and becoming a mother and so there's always this notion of becoming a mother and we read a lot of scientific research about what happens when you become a mother when you give birth it is associated with giving birth and this rush of hormones that creates that instant maternal bond or attachment with your child because you've also carried them for eight or nine months in your body and I was looking reflecting on this experience very different from my previous experience of not carrying the children but becoming a mother and 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 I was thinking about how actually instead of that rush of hormones, because I haven't given birth to them, what about it is kind of a dance between the infant and the mother about the different ways that we bond and attach together and this, this two-way process of, of forming this, this attachment in the days, weeks and months to come. So I suppose I was thinking about all those mothers and all those people who become mothers but have not mothered or given birth and finally Pragya I mean your book ends on a a note of hope on a personal level you know with kind of really a a strong sense of joy about your your family of five and your daughters Um, but it also signals a warning too so you write of a rise in the state control of women's bodies during the pandemic I wonder what examples you can give us there and what we should be guarding against what we should be vigilant against now as we're seeing around the world, I think bodies are being controlled more and more, and some bodies are being marginalized more than others. What it means to be a woman is being becoming a really polarized discourse and debate around the world. This notion of woman and feminine entity, and we're falling back on those tropes, these boxes we try to escape, we're trapping ourselves in again and again, it feels like, because we're really so adhering to this notion of what a woman means. But we are also seeing the rise of controls on women's reproductive facilities as well. We're seeing um, abortion rules in the US, which are very heavily being state controlled, um, and the decisions that are made by men for women. So we're seeing that in countries in um, Turkey, and we're seeing that in Hungary and Czechoslovakia about how women's reproduction is being, and choices are being curtailed as well. And so it is, it is quite 
scary. It is quite threatening about how these discourses are becoming so polarized, why women's choices are being curtailed, why again we are seeing these these rise in this discourse around falling birth rate and that and giving women the message that you need to stand up and you need to have children. It's your duty. Yes. Yeah, which is always linked with nationalism, no? Often linked with nationalism. Pronatalism and nationalism go hand in hand. And also anti-abortion debate has a lot of racial history, racialized history as well. It's rooted in eugenics. And and we are not, we are talking about motherhood so much, um, but there is this inherent paradox because the state, even in the UK, is not providing quality free childcare for women. So motherhood, the act of becoming a mother or is is revered, but when that happens, women are still facing motherhood penalty in work. We just saw the example of Stella Creasy and about the maternity in Parliament um, leave, and how it becomes a bar to women's careers and women's choices later on. So I think we really need to think about what society can do for us. Yeah, not just what we yeah. can do for society. Exactly. Um, Pragya Agarwal, thank you so much for joining us. That was really fascinating. Thank you. Thank you. Pragya Agarwal talking about her latest book, Motherhood. And with me now is Samira Shackle, editor of New Humanist magazine. Samira, hi. Uh, What's your take on what we've heard from Pragya there? Yeah, what really jumped out at me listening to that was um, all the points at which data is is lacking or deficient in some way. This kind of idea of missing information. I thought that was a really seemed to be quite a consistent thread. And I was actually thinking about that when you were talking with Pragya about um, the prevalence of ritual and superstition and old wives tales when it comes to fertility and pregnancy. And I sort of wondered to what extent that's a symptom of uh, all these areas where we don't have sufficient data or to what extent it's maybe just human nature that even if we're generally rational or prize rational uh, sort of thought processes that when we're faced with something that's kind of out of our control and hard to understand in some way uh, that we do fall back on things because it makes us feel we're doing something gives the illusion of Mm. illusion of control perhaps I don't know which of those things it is or perhaps it's a bit of both yeah I mean I, I would just from personal experience I would say it's possibly both I mean obviously lack of data and data gaps uh, that she talks about, especially to do with kind of intersectional inequality, is is really important and really serious. But but just more more generally, there is you know whether you're pregnant or trying to get pregnant, if that's you know what you choose to do, there's so much information out there that it's almost overwhelming. And I wonder also whether maybe people resort to or retreat to kind of ritual and old wives' tales and superstition because they're actually bombarded by by information. I know I certainly felt a bit like that when I had my son recently and I was overdue and looking to trigger labour. I pretty much just Googled around until I found whatever it was I wanted to hear, even if it was on actually what I secretly probably knew were probably the most dodgy websites ever and the weirdest blogs ever full of typos. And then, you know, I just kind of felt a bit supported in doing the silly things I would do to to try and, um, you know, make labour happen. I think to some um, degree, especially in those kind of examples, you know, maybe it's harmless to just do a little bit extra you know the little kind of bit of ritual on top of the the science but where it's obviously not okay and where it's a massive problem is where people are being um, exploited by people who are taking money from people who are in desperate situations or are raising false hopes um, you know whilst extracting money and time and energy from people that's that's really not okay to mess with people when they're in such a vulnerable situation and and trying to have a child Um, I think Prager's discussion around body clock was also really interesting 
for that reason she talks about how sure yeah it's it's real um but there's a lot of pressure and panic um that's kind of socially constructed or amplified really around the 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 idea of the body clock and that really that doesn't need to be there and we can do a lot to make conditions in which women are making choices about pregnancy and fertility um much much better and much 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 easier for them um she talks in her book for example about egg freezing and how she you know was on the tube in london seeing these adverts about you know freeze your eggs now freeze your eggs now you don't really see adverts like that targeted at women in fact i think the only adverts i've seen that are remotely comparable are ones targeted at at men to be sperm donors um and yet the ones targeted at women are about freezing their their eggs i mean yeah the body clock point is so knotty um there obviously is more of an age-related fertility decline for women than men or a sharper one anyway but there's also so much social pressure and and it's it's overstated certainly and the egg freezing point I think connects back to what you were just saying about marketing services to people I mean it's very expensive very invasive I think often people don't appreciate how invasive it is Um, and I was actually just just um, by coincidence doing a bit of research about this recently for a piece I'm working on and a, a really really huge proportion of women who freeze their eggs never end up using them uh, but it's sort of marketed as this um, tool of empowerment and actually it's it's you know it's a pretty serious surgical procedure that's pretty unpleasant in many ways um yeah and, and some, something else that struck me while you were talking to Prague was this uh, blending that she's done of her own story with with academic research I find that interesting it's obviously you know having that that sense of narrative can make research much more engaging to read when you're writing for a mass audience. I published a book earlier this year and I, well, obviously on a completely different subject, a non-fiction book, but I am personally very resistant to writing in uh, that sort of autobiographical mode and really prefer to keep things about, you know, write as a journalist about other people rather than myself. So Yeah, keep a bit of yeah, distance. Yeah, exactly. So uh, and, yeah. And on, this is obviously such an intensely personal subject yeah and I think motherhood in particular is a subject I mean maybe I should say parenthood really is in particular a subject that does seem to lend itself to the kind of confessional mode and it's also really an area that forces women forces people to consider the tension between their beliefs in theory whether that's you know feminism or environmentalism and their desires in practice you know whether that's actually considering contracting a surrogate or or having children despite being concerned about the impact on the planet. Um, Pragya discussed that tension pretty honestly, re-surrogacy, as I say, but also Lucy Jones, the science writer in our episode on nature and mental health as part of this series. She also has an interesting point to make there that I think is worth listening to. But yeah, that is all for today and we'll be back next week with more. Remember, you can find reading lists and transcripts for all episodes of With Reason at newhumanist.org.uk. They're ready to share with the student in your life or the resident critic at your kitchen table. You can also find us on Twitter at New Humanist. With Reason was presented by me, series producer Alice Block, with New Humanist editor Samira Shackle. Our sound engineer was Dave Crackles. See you back here soon. Bye.